Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the find a way to hug your still hypothetical descendants tightly because time is a moral deception edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, I talked to The Economist Tyler Cowen, who is also a polymathic blogger over at Marginal Revolution and the author of many, many books, including a recent trilogy of books about productivity stagnation and its impact on advanced economies. But that's not what we're going to talk to him about. Now, if you listen to this podcast, there is some chance that you already know who Tyler is, and he's been on the show a few times before. But you might not know that he recently published a long philosophical essay at a secretive link. A link that he only sent to buyers of his recent book, The Complacent Class, who contacted him directly and requested it. The title of the essay is Stubborn Attachments, A Vision for a Society of Free, Prosperous, and Responsible Individuals. And it lays out Tyler's philosophical and economic principles that he argues would help us realize that vision. Tyler hosts a podcast of his own, and he appears on many other podcasts, but he's never discussed this essay before. And for the first time publicly, we're also sharing that link over at ftalphaville.ft.com. In the course of my conversation with Tyler, we discuss, among many other things, why Tyler believes that time distorts our moral thinking, how to combine certain necessary philosophical absolutes with humility about what we can know, the methods of the late philosopher Derek Parfit, who influenced Tyler quite a bit, the ethical dimensions of debates about redistributive policies, and how to resolve competing moral claims within economics. And we close with a speed round about arts and culture, as we normally do when we have Tyler on. This was such a fun podcast, much more fun than possibly I've conveyed in this dry introduction. Uh, there's so much in it that's provocative, smart, challenging, and occasionally as endearingly eccentric as Tyler himself. Here it is. So, Tyler, stubborn attachments strikes me as maybe the first foundational Tyler work. It comes after Culture Tyler. You had a series of books about culture and economics. It comes after a self-helpy version of Tyler with Discover Your Inner Economist uh, and a couple of other books, including your food book. Uh, and then there was the Stagnationist Trilogy. This is different altogether. Uh, why'd you write it? Let me just say, this is a book about philosophy, unlike my other books. And it's actually a book most people shouldn't read. I wrote this book so that you don't read it. But it gives my foundational take on what is right or wrong. How do we think about ethics? How does that translate into policy? How and when should we be agnostic in our beliefs? And those, to me, are some of the most important questions. And most people I see, they're just not addressing them. You don't want people to read it? It's not that I don't want you to read it, but I didn't make any concessions in writing this book. Uh, it assumes you know a fair amount about philosophy. It doesn't explain all of the moves it makes. It's my views. It's there. I didn't release it commercially. Think of it as kind of one of those bonus DVD extras that you get when you order the pack. And if you enjoy it, wonderful, but don't think it's like the rest of my books. Let me now encourage our listeners to completely ignore what Tyler just said about not reading the essay 
and at least listen to the rest of this podcast, I promise you're going to have a lot of fun. I speculated about something while I was reading it as well. You are very uncomfortable when the consensus opinion starts moving in your direction. Correct. Right? So when that starts to happen, you either start to remind people that there are caveats to your earlier views. In some cases, you just straight up change your mind, right? That's right. I saw this book as almost like a self-constraining mechanism where you had to say, here, look, these are my core beliefs. I'm going to be very didactic in telling you what I believe. And if I run away from it, I'm going to have to do it very explicitly if people start agreeing with me. But in the meantime, here it is. I wasn't kidding when I said I was kind of a soft libertarian, and this is why. That's right. And keep in mind, writing this over 15 or more years, it wasn't that I worked on it steadily, but each year I'd devote a month or two to it. So it kept on evolving. And then finally I got to the point like, now it's done. There's a fixed point theorem here. It's converged. Time to put it out. Do you think that most or all public intellectuals should write a treatise like this? Uh, only if they want to. I think they all ought to want to. And if you don't want to, then how can you believe anything? This is foundationalist Tyler coming out again. So you hear all, all kinds of claims about utilitarianism or inequality or meritocracy being important, but people never address the question, like, at what margin am I willing to give up this principle? And that's the great defect in current political discussion. People have a lot of arguments for why their margin is good, but they have hardly any arguments for why they stop at that margin. Okay. Uh, you want to redistribute? Well, maybe. But then why don't we redistribute even more? And if the people who oppose the redistribution you favor are evil, aren't you evil for maybe opposing yet more redistribution? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Here's what I thought we would do in this interview. Um, we're just going to go chapter by chapter. Sure. Okay. We're <clears> going to explore some of the themes in the places where it's relevant. I might push back a little bit on you. Uh, and, and at the end, We'll tie it all together, uh, and we'll maybe explore some uh, potential new avenues for your next book about this very topic. How about Great. that? Sure. Sounds good? Okay. Chapter one, the introduction. You set the tension early on between a kind of moral absolutism that you're going to require of readers or that you're going to encourage in readers uh, on the one hand and the need to be humble about what we can know on the other hand. Uh, this is a very Tyler-esque move, but here's a quote. Science is our main path to knowledge, and yet so often science tells us we don't know. That is all the more true for social science, and perhaps macroeconomics stands at the summit of our epistemic limitations. Everyone believes in right and wrong. So if you're writing a book that's relativistic, I would say you probably don't mean it yourself. Plenty of people claim to be relativists, but when you listen about, say, how they talk about their colleagues, maybe even their children, their relatives, it's obvious they're not. So take that as given, but then realize the chance that you're right on a particular question might only be a few percent. Now, that view may be better, like 3% chance of being right is better than a 2.3% chance of being right. But to actually internalize the chance that I'm right on X is only 3%, 2%, whatever, that's hard to do. And that's one of the things this book is trying to teach us. Yeah, I should note, you, you essentially wave away an entire branch of philosophy right at the start when you say, I'm not going to get into the relativist question. I'm going to take it as a given. You do acknowledge up front that you're going to do that. But you also say that even if you don't quite buy that that's a useful thing to do, even if you do have some relativist ideas, you can probably still buy some of the framework that you're presenting uh, and fit that into the reader's pre-existing notions of what is relative and what is absolute. 
That's right. The book uses a lot of probabilistic arguments. So say you thought relativism was true with 0.97 and absolutism was true with 0.3. Well, the relativist calculations, they're a kind of wash, and you're still left with, for your decision-making, the absolutist considerations. So you only need to attach some chance to absolutism being true to want to follow the logic of the book. Okay. You do uh, establish uh, some grounding principles at the very beginning, though, and you write that to build principles for politics, at least, we need three things. One is an approach that is robust to human error, and this is where you kind of give a nod to cognitive biases, the tendency to fall into us versus them thinking, right? Another is doctrines we actually can believe in, and here's where you give a nod to the sort of tension between faith and reason. Um, and then finally, and this is the most interesting one of all, I think, pluralism, a diversity of values uh, as a core, as a fundamental moral intuition. Uh, can you kind of take us through each of those and why you think those are necessary parts of the platform? Well, to start with pluralism, we have intuitions that human well-being matters. We have intuitions that human rights matter. There may be other principles of merit or beauty or you know, equality that, that matter. And the question is in ethics, how do you trade them off at the margin? So it's very much an economic approach. It's not a big boot stamp, here's why you should care more about inequality. It's take whatever you care about and try to limit it at the margin. And to me, it's always surprising how little ethics or public policy discussion is done that way. Now, tell me again the others you want me to talk uh, about. The others are doctrines that we can actually believe in. Oh, well, if you're going to have ethical principles for society, so take Peter Singer. In the basic Singer argument, which is modified a bit in different works, but utility is really what drives the calculus but people can't believe that. That's one problem with it. You can't imagine a society constructed on Peter Singer-like grounds where mothers are actually wondering, well, if I sell my baby and adopt five from Haiti, is the world better off? There's something wrong there, even if you find the utilitarian logic compelling. Yeah, to be clear about the Singer's argument or early Singer's argument, this is the idea that every marginal dollar of consumption beyond like your basic needs should actually go to somebody else whose basic needs are not fulfilled rather than on your own uh, individual pursuits or pleasures. This would crush the ice cream industry. So I want a world where we still have ice cream, but actually can do more good for others than in the Peter Singer model. An approach that's robust to human error and cognitive biases and us versus them tribalism. People always think they're more right on average than they are. This is true of everyone. If it's true of everyone, it has to be true of me. So I wanted to build a set of arguments that in some way were robust to me being wrong most of the time. And that's hard to do. If you're wrong most of the time, your arguments are wrong most of the time. But is there some meta level where there's a claim you can make that is taking that into account in some way? Okay. <clears throat> then introduce the six issues that you're going to use as planks in your philosophical argument. We're just going to go through each of these, right? Time, the present versus the future. We don't worry enough about the future. There's plenty of evidence people are programmed for the here and now. And if you ask them to postpone a reward for even a week, they start rebelling. I say worry about the distant future a great deal. In fact, that's a move I'm going to use to help explain how we can judge one thing to be much better than another. Indeed. The other is aggregation. How do we resolve disagreements? Must we succumb to nihilism? It's a big problem in economics. We have all these fancy constructs like the arrow and possibility theorem. I think they're all overrated. I think there's a set of policy actions where if you look far enough into time, some choices are way better than others, and you can see that in a way that's obvious to pretty much everyone. But you need to look very far into time. Right. 
rules. Uh, you're going to speak up in favor of them. I mentioned a certain amount of moral absolutism that you're going to ask of readers. Uh, this is where it comes into play. That's right. You need rules to guide your behavior. Otherwise, you're having to calculate each and every time, well, what's best? You'll be crippled by your own epistemic uncertainty. But if you have a series of rules that yield good outcomes, stick with those. We'll return later to why don't those rules collapse into judging each and every individual case. Radical uncertainty, uh, and this is, uh, we're going to talk about it later in the chapter that I think is the most sort of purely philosophical of all the chapters. I mean, it's paralyzing if you think about it. You could say, well, if we spend an extra three seconds holding this podcast, that will in turn change the movements of other people. They'll arrive at home on their commutes a bit later. They'll conceive different babies. There'll either be a new future Hitler or there won't be. And how do we even know what are the consequences of our actions? It's one of these freshman dorm bullshit session topics that we all like to dismiss. And I, while I think we're right in dismissing it, we need to understand why we're dismissing it to arrive at the correct answer. Yes. And as a little bit of a teaser for our, our listeners, I am going to later exalt the quote unquote freshman <coughs> dorm bullshit conversations, which I think are great and everybody should do more of. All right. We'll get into that later. Uh, I want to stick with uh, the six planks. Uh, the next is uh, how is it that we believe in rights? Should we believe in inviolable rights? I don't, in this book, try to prove that there are rights, but I do think I show that to the extent there are rights, they have to be inviolable. So w one of the key arguments of the book is that if you can have economic growth at a higher rate in an ongoing manner, the future value of that adds up to be something very, very large, and it will outweigh virtually all other considerations. The one thing it won't outweigh is some kind of infinite claim that you say can't violate the rights of a million babies by torturing them. So if you believe it in rights at all, and I think most of us do, that notion of rights has to be fairly absolute. Otherwise, it gets swamped by the benefits of higher economic growth. And most of us don't think we should do anything for higher economic growth, but we should be willing to do a lot, namely follow good rules. Right. Uh, now I'm a little bit worried that like, my follow-up question is going to like uh, lead to the conception of the next Hitler, right, now that you brought it up. Right? <laughs> Depends on my answer, too. <laughs> right. So we're, yes, okay, so we're mutually both culpable. equally responsible. Uh, the final, the sixth and final uh, plank to bring up, common sense morality versus uh, utilitarian self-sacrificing uh, philosophy. Let's say we're strict utilitarians, that you're always asking, why should I buy this ice cream cone when I could be sending the money to a poor part of sub-Saharan Africa? In a world like that, the incentive to work uh, dwindles too starkly. So less is produced. I argue that if you build a world on common sense morality, which is an ethic of savings, investment, hard work, obedience to most but not all rules, and at the margin increased charity, you'll actually get a better result over time with zero discounting and more economic growth than you'll get under Peter Singer-like redistribution. So... Uh, this is a defense of common sense morality. It's also trying to show common sense morality and utilitarianism properly understood. They're not that far apart. That's the Derek Parfit-like endeavor of trying to move together ethical views that appear to disagree. And that's another thing I'm trying to do in this book. Yeah, I should say I was uh, surprised in reading the book by just how much uh, influence Derek Parfit has had on your thinking. Not necessarily his conclusions. You take issue with some of his uh, his thinking with some of his findings, but his methods. You really like his method, his use of big, bold, counterfactuals, thought experiments. These are all over your book, and you attribute a lot of them to him. 
I read Parfit's Reasons and Persons in 1984. I just found a copy in a Harvard bookstore. It changed my life, changed the rest of my career. It's one of the most important books of the 20th century, though I think in many regards it's wrong, and Parfit himself became too much of a Peter Singer-like redistributionist. Yeah, I, I don't want to stay too long in the Parfit issue because we're going to talk about him a bit later. But the idea <clears throat> from Reasons and Persons, wasn't it that there is no such thing as a consistent identity temporally over time or generationally or whatever, that it's constantly changing? Uh, I don't see that as a necessary foundation in your thinking. I would put Parfit's own view a little different. I'm not sure he's denying individuality, but I think he's saying most of the ethical views we think we believe in smuggle in notions of individuality that are either difficult to defend or we violate in other contexts, and he's trying to force everyone to be consistent, and those are some of the best parts of the book. Uh, I think he was himself always agnostic on the question, how much are we truly individuals? Part of him believed we weren't at all, the Buddhist side of Derek Parfit, but the actual living human being common sense Derek Parfit, who would correspond with people at enormous length and spend hours and hours with them if he thought they were the right person to talk to, that Derek Parfit very much believed in individual identity. So there's some like Hegelian synthesis of Parfitian views on identity that's required to do any kind of ethics. Okay. So this is the part of the book where you introduce uh, the two philosophical maneuvers that you need in order to arrive at your own preference for a kind of social, political, economic philosophy. The first maneuver is that you give a lot of primacy to uh, the idea of production as a necessary moral value, right? And the second is uh, one that you mentioned earlier, which is considering distance to the future as something that uh, we sort of underrate, right? In other words, we should, we should think of people in the future as almost as important as people in the present, even right. if they don't exist yet. The importance of production. If you read so much of academic philosophy, well, it's written by academics, and it's all about redistribution. But how the stuff gets here, for all the mistakes of Ayn Rand, all the ways in which academic philosophers will attack her, she's the one who understood that and stressed that. It's all about production. So production has to be central to philosophy way prior to redistribution. It's one of the tacks I take in this book. So the correct morals or ethics or rules it concerns what can we do to produce more, and this will in the very long run be good for everyone. And time I see as a kind of an illusion. It may even be an illusion in physics, but certainly in morality. If something happens far from now, it doesn't matter less. We have all kinds of tricky constructs, time preference, discounting productivity of capital that we invoke in complicated ways to try to diminish the import of the future. But in the book, I try to argue that's wrong. The future is very real. It ought to be more vivid than it really is. And the policy best for the future is to maximize the rate of what I call sustainable economic growth. Sustainable economic growth. Uh, I think the phrase you give it is wealth plus, and that is the uh, theme of chapter two, wealth makes the world go round. And this is where you introduce, I think, your first, I don't know if this is Parfitian, but it's certainly Cowenian thought experiment, the Crusonia plant, a plant that gives a surging yield uh, sustainably into the future what is its meaning, and how do you tie it to economic growth or wealth plus? The plant is an analogy, but say you had a plant or a tree and it would just keep on growing and producing value. Over time, the net worth there would be very, very high, right? It's like this remarkable annuity. So the book isn't about plants. It's about real-world economies. So what features do we have in real-world economies that are like these self-replicating Crusonia plants 
and it's basically good rules and institutions as being a big part of what drives growth. So they're this incredibly valuable thing that we should invest in above all else because the future really matters. That will get us more growth. That's like our hidden Crusonia plan, so to speak. So it's economic growth, but, and you're quick to note this, adjusted for environmental sustainability and leisure time. So this is your conception of wealth plus, not just actual material wealth. That's right. And this is now standard in economics, though uh, it was not completely standard at the time I started writing the book. Wealth maximization or growth maximization, it doesn't mean working 20 hours a day. There's obviously burnout. And wealth is there for human purposes and to have no leisure time. Just think of leisure as a form of wealth and include that in wealth. And also, if we destroy our environment in that distant future, we'll be much less wealthy. So if you think about wealth consistently, environmentalism actually becomes really a quite fundamental principle of political philosophy. Right. We should stay on the topic of economic growth (laughs) and its relationship to the fragility of civilizations. You cite a lot of data in this chapter about how even thousands of years into the future, uh, if you look at the institutions that existed, say, at the time of ancient Rome, right, and you look at the European countries now that were uh, conquered, I guess, or that were part of Roman civilization, they still have, in part because of those initial institutions, stronger growth than other parts of the world. This is a very sticky idea, That's right? right. So in medieval times, England had a freer labor market than most of the continent, and today it still does. This, to me, is remarkable. So in expected value terms, good norms, practices, rules, and institutions persist and export value into the future, and that's an incredibly important fact. It's what directs our attention as to where we should be investing at the collective level. Here's a quote from this chapter. Someone will have tanks and nuclear weapons, whether we like it or not. It is important that the more benevolent societies be both richer and more technologically advanced. And again, we see the relevance of economic growth. Raises the question also of whether or not the benevolence also springs from the growth and not just that you want the benevolent uh, societies who are benevolent for other reasons to also grow more quickly, something that maybe feeds on itself, self-perpetuating. That's right. Benjamin Friedman wrote a very good book, The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth. So growth is mostly good for people. On average, it makes them more pacifist, more cooperative, more trusting. Uh, You can think of exceptions, but again, in expected value terms, Uh, I think you can expect improvements from ongoing economic growth. You also list as some of the other benefits from growth, the gains for poor countries from fast economic growth, even in rich countries, they end up benefiting from being able to migrate to those rich countries. The R&D spillover effects from the rich countries, remittances, the brain gain from uh, people who move to the rich countries and then migrate back, more education, a diversified a diversified set of values, I guess, because you go to a new place and you learn about its values, right. that kind of thing. All of this is part of Wealth Plus, and then you set it against uh, something that Amartya Sen came up with, which is the idea of capabilities. I don't think Sen thinks closely enough about compounding rates of economic growth, so he's more concerned with short-run redistribution and not enough with good institutions. I think it's striking how much If one country is better off, on average, that's a gain for other countries, too. You can go back way into human history. So the rise of China before the birth of Christ was significant for later Western development. Then the Industrial Revolution in the West turns out to be highly significant for China doing better over time. There are serious problems, interactions, sometimes wars along the way. But again, in expected value terms, 
we're rooting for these different parts of the world to do well. And that gets at this idea of co-movement of values, that if you have economic growth and healthier institutions, the good things that will come from that will be so diverse that your initially pluralistic theory in which aggregation seemed to be impossible, you actually do have a way of judging the whole stream of one time scenario for the world is better than an alternative. Just try compounding growth over 100 years at 3% rather than 1% and see what one society will look like and compare it to the other. Yeah, this is an interesting point, too, because if, let's say, a country that doesn't have that stronger rate of economic growth chooses to plow its resources into, let's say, the healthcare sector, it might, for a period of time, have very impressive results from that, right, in terms of health gains. Yes. You know? But in 100 years, it's still going to look tremendously backward relative to the countries that grow more quickly. I'll inject a bit of personal commentary here because I've now reported from Cuba a few times, yes. right? My family's from there. And a lot of people make a lot of noise about how Cuban healthcare uh, seems to do pretty well relative to um, a non-advanced economy. Uh, they talk about like free education, things like that. Correct. For one thing, the data are a bit flawed. But for another, they don't realize that if you want to fund those programs, you need a vibrant rest of the <clears throat> economy. And Cuba doesn't have that, right? And what ends up happening is that you see that if you direct all your resources into one thing, yes, you can get temporarily impressive results, but you don't see what's lost, right? You see that in the rest of the economy, it's an utter catastrophe. People have very few freedoms. They have very few options for what to do with their lives. And so it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to point to that one thing. You brought up the example of Kerala, but I always go back to Cuba because it's what I know. Yeah. It's striking how much post-1979 China doesn't really in invest much in health care at all. In some ways, they're disinvesting in health care. Singapore, even now, I think is spending, what, 4% of its GDP on health care. Its people are very healthy because it became wealthy. So spending on health care, I see, is an overrated way to improve the world because it doesn't tend to give you compounding returns. It's a one-time thing. You protect a, a bunch of people. Well, it may or may not be worth doing. But I'd rather look for that longer stream of good results over time that compounds. You can think of a lot of the book as applying the magic of compound interest, which you know all FT listeners and readers know about, actually to ethics. And to bring those two things together, super simple, but academic philosophers tend not to do that. Yeah. Uh, and then finally in this chapter, there's a discussion of whether or not uh, wealth or your idea of wealth plus necessarily correlates with increasing <clears throat> happiness. I like this section because it, it looks at happiness as a very kind of pliant construct. In other words, uh, when we talk about happiness, my conception of happiness might be very different from your version of it. A lot of it has to do with language. A lot of it has to do with the way that expectations adjust in response to wealth, right? In right. other words, this is not a straightforward measurement. And so when you look at these findings that, well, beyond a certain point, uh, you're not happier the richer you are, a lot of times those surveys or those studies don't really take into account uh, that there's a whole suite of things that we should be caring about, not just happiness, but also that the happiness measurement itself might not be what people think it is. You know, 20 years ago, people used to say, once you reach the per capita income level of Greece, happiness doesn't go up with wealth. And, you know, Greece was just as happy as some number of other places. No one uses the Greece example anymore. Wealth is a buffer against tragedy. In the short run, there's so many arguments you can make like, oh, 
I was 23. I was in graduate school, hardly had a dime in my pocket. I was in love. The whole world seemed open to me. I was so happy. Now I'm 47. I have more money. I'm stressed. Who's to say happiness and wealth have anything to do with each other? That to me is a significant fallacy. You may be right about that particular comparison, but take whole societies much wealthier and much less wealthy and compare the amounts of tragedy in each case and you're going to side with the wealthier societies. And those societies do more to help other countries. Yeah. Let me now bring up a, a few potential challenges to the idea that sustainable or that a faster pace of economic growth necessarily has all of these great outcomes. Or at least let me bring up a few of the potential side effects. One is that it's true that the wealthier a society, the more choices you have for how to live your life. Right. But it also seems to be the case that the wealthier society, the more of what I would call maybe regrettable distractions from uh, the pursuit of real contentment. So uh, the video game example is one that uh, you've written about quite a bit. Maybe people should not be playing as many video games. And even if they're not going to take that time uh, and go back into the labor force, they should still be trying to do things like fall in love or foster a closer relationship with their parents and friends uh, and siblings and things of that nature. In the short run, you will always see that more wealth has a whole host of costs. You'll make mistakes with your wealth. You'll buy too many cheeseburgers. You may become, you know, a crass person who watches too much TV and the TV is too large a screen, whatever. But again, the longer run you make the comparison between a society growing at a higher rate compared to a society growing at a lower rate, I think it's very hard to find cases where people will systematically prefer the society growing at the lower rate. But again, in the short run, it will be very complex and unclear. Okay. I want to cite three more points and then ask you to sort of fit them into the framework of this chapter. You'll be aware of all of these, but for our listeners, the median male wage in the U.S. has been stagnant for several decades. That is not an uncontroversial uh, statistic. It might not be perfect. But as you've said in the past, the fact that we can even talk about it as a legitimate claim says quite a lot, right? Correct. Second, uh, this is something we just learned last year. Life expectancy in the U.S. appears to have at least taken a pause, if not slightly reversed, might be temporary, but it's happened, and that, I think, also is quite amazing. And then finally, the Ann Case and Angus Deaton findings on uh, middle-aged mortality. For white middle-aged people in the U.S., uh, it has climbed uh, for the middle-aged, right? right? They found that in the last few years, according to the last paper, it has also started to climb again, um, for uh, black middle-aged Americans. Uh, these are all quite depressing and pessimistic conclusions. Uh, how do they fit into your framework? Well, if we take stagnant wages, most of all stagnant male wages, that's a sign we're not doing something right with boosting the rate of economic growth. So in one of my other books, The Great Stagnation, I talk about how we might try to think about growth differently. In my book, The Complacent Class, I consider this as well. We need to take more risk. We need to accord higher status to science. There's a variety of policy prescriptions we, we might want to pursue. But that's a big sign we're, we're getting something wrong. And it's one reason why I wanted to put stubborn attachments out now. I felt we're at the point, we're screwing up. You know, we, we need a better dialogue on these questions. Now, if you ask about opioid deaths and falling life expectancy, to me it's striking the United States is now spending over 17% of its GDP on health care. And we did Obamacare. And now life expectancy, again, there's some disputes. Is it topping out? Is it, is it falling? Maybe difficult to say, but it's mm -hmm. not doing what we want. And that, I think, is a sign that spending money on health care, narrowly defined, uh, is very much overrated. Okay. Let's go to Chapter 3. This is Overcoming Disagreement. 
This is uh, where you uh, make your case in explicit terms that the benefits of economic growth can help to overcome the uh, Kenneth Arrow impossibility theorem of how we can never know whose preferences should be more important. Right. So in Kenneth Arrow's theorem, it's more complicated than I'm going to present it. But if person one wants to watch one TV show, the other person wants to watch the other TV show, whose preference can you count? Arrow showed that in over a broad range of cases, there's no consistent algorithm that will help you sort out conflicting preferences without making one person a dictator. That's not really how we make decisions. I argue in the book, there's a variety of cases where over long enough periods of time, some outcomes are simply better for almost everyone. Not literally everyone. They may not be better for people who love Stalinism above all else. They may not be better for people who desire the death and destruction of the human race. But a close enough better for everyone that you're willing to go with that judgment. And I think that gets back to this idea of Crusonia plants. Again, society is growing at systematically higher rates. Is the one thing we can say over enough time is better. That's how we resolve aggregation disputes. Here's a quote from this chapter that I liked. South Korea is much better off than, say, Democratic Republic of Congo by a very considerable margin. The higher growth alternative eventually will offer a clear and ongoing preponderance of plural values in its favor, whether it be living standards, women's rights, freedom of choice, or many other values, including the fight against poverty. Correct. Now, you could say, well, I can't prove that, right? But if that's the biggest weakness in the argument of the book, I'm actually pretty happy because I feel that comports with common sense morality. It gives us rules we can follow. It's broadly utilitarian. The death and destructionists are unhappy. Still, if if that's the biggest problem, I'm okay with that. Here's kind of uh, an obnoxious question, but it's the one that came to mind as I was reading this chapter, Okay, which is that all of that is fair enough. And on some superficial level, it's sort of obvious that you want faster economic growth instead of slower economic growth. But I wonder if this idea is sort of like Newtonian physics uh, in the time before Einstein, where like at a grand scale, it certainly applies. But the closer you get to like some marginal decision, uh, it starts to break down and everything eventually becomes a little bit harder, especially since the world seems like a place now where you need a sort of constant re-examination of just what it is that even causes faster economic growth. That's exactly right. It's not an obnoxious point. That's where agnosticism comes in. If it is truly a marginal decision with nothing grander at stake, then for exactly those reasons, we do need to be really quite agnostic about it because we can't overcome aggregation problems. And that's how a seriously taken agnosticism fits into the argument of the book. In fact, arguably most questions fall into that category, right? And then we shouldn't think we know better. Here's a quote that I also liked from this chapter. It's about how wealth can solve the problem of uh, preference aggregation, but even within individuals uh, and not just societally. In other words, this approach also resolves some problems of preference aggregation within the individual self. If part of you wants a cheeseburger and another part of you wants broccoli, maybe it is hard to come to a good all things considered judgment of what is best. Is fun eating more important or is your health more important? Yet when we have the chance to opt for a Crusonia plant, higher rates of economic growth, we can get by with a fairly blunt set of judgments. The wealthier society will, over the course of time, make just about everyone much better off, unquote. That's right. But again, a core message of the book, you really do need to be agnostic about the truly marginal choices. Okay. We'll also note that uh, in some cases, uh, 
even if you do pursue this idea, it might take even multiple generations before those gains do get passed along to the majority of the uh, like wealth spectrum. Mm-hmm. You and I have both written about like Engels' pause, the period at the start of the 1800s, Correct. when the Industrial Revolution uh, started, you know, becoming a major force, and median real wages didn't actually pick up for something like 40 years. It was an astonishing period Correct. of wage we stagnation. Agree. Yes, one needs to root for the Industrial Revolution. I think it's a kind of moral imperative. But yet along the way, there are many people who are not gaining. There are some people who are losing. But you look at the the broader sweep of humanity, but for those marginal issues at the time, again, agnosticism. I think that's an excellent example. But it's why the message of the book is also hard to follow. The modified principle of growth is we should push for sustainable economic growth, but not at the expense of inviolable human rights. Uh, This is, I think, the first part in the book where you really set this uh, in explicit terms. And you say that this does not include positive rights and positive liberties. Because positive liberties, uh, those are overwhelmed by the long-run benefits of growth. But if someone wants to say, as I would, well, we shouldn't wantonly kill, murder, torture innocent people, those are absolute human rights. So we shouldn't think, well, you know, if we kill this grandma and redistribute her money to, to Bill Gates... Well, Bill Gates could invest it at 7%, and the grandma would have it sit barren in her checking account. I mean, maybe Bill Gates could do more with the money, but I think that's simply wrong, and we're justified in saying as such. Yeah, there's a thought experiment that you bring up here, too, from Derek Parfit, Mistakes in Moral Arithmetic, and it goes like this. You have uh, an innocent person lined up to be shot, and six people are doing the shooting. If you're one of those six people, should you fire your bullet? And if you do, are you a murderer, given that the person would have died whether or not you pull the trigger. Your point is, just don't pull the trigger. It's wrong. That's right. And I think this gets back to economic growth. So say there's something you can do. At the margin, it doesn't feel significant. But if a lot of people did it, it would add up to a lot. We should upgrade that in our calculations. And that gets us a bit away from this complete agnosticism. There's a a point here that you also make about the dual ideas of prosperity and liberty at the center of your philosophy. Uh, You start talking about it, I think, in this chapter. My question is, uh, aren't there situations where those things might be contradictory? They might be opposed to each other. Of course they are. That's why you need rights, because they will contradict each other. And rights tell you, stick with the rights. Don't murder grandma, right? If they never contradicted each other and everything were compatibilist, Maybe it's true in some cases, but I don't think it's true overall. You could do without rights. Okay. Chapter four. Is time a moral illusion? Yes. Okay, go for it. I'm just going to let you talk then. (laughs) (laughs) You're so enthusiastic. Go for it. If I know something bad will happen in 30 years, morally, that ought to count for as much as something bad happening now. Now, I might wait at less because me, 30 years from now, I don't identify with as much. Or 30 years from now, it might be a different person. But when the pleasures and pains come, they're just as real. So I think we should discount for risk. Maybe the person won't be there. But when you take utility or happiness or pain, however you want to talk about it, well-being, we should not discount over time. And that's what's allowing this more distant future to have such a force over our decisions. I might be overdoing the quote thing, but I think it's a useful way to introduce uh, the ideas. This is where you're talking about the importance of discount rates, which you just mentioned. Here's the quote. Discounting also matters for how hell-bent we are on pursuing a higher rate of economic growth. 
A higher growth rate means that the future, at some point in time, will be much richer than otherwise. And as I argued, it means also that human beings will be much better off. How compelled should we feel to bring about this wealthier state of affairs? If you only care about today, you won't have such strong reason to act in favor of higher sustainable growth. You know, when Hegel wrote in the 19th century, he thought the Prussian bureaucracy was the embodiment of what he was arguing for. Uh, I would say, in my case, it's the East Asian economies. First Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea, China, again, with varying time periods. But those are the places that have been hell-bent on economic growth. They at least tried to do everything they could. They also mostly got it right. I'm not saying I agree with each and every decision or every feature of those societies. And we see the results. And it's extraordinary. People in the West should be more obsessed with East Asia than they are. That's kind of underlying sociological, historical, political message of this book. Worth noting also that the methods followed by the East Asian economies uh, in their economic miracle were um, lessons that they learned from the initial period of expansive United States growth, right? The initial kind of combination of mercantilist policy with state-directed finance, some protectionism, pursuing industry, which had all these great spillover effects. Uh, You can sort of trace the lineage back to... uh, early period, uh, you know, things that Alexander Hamilton wrote, what the U.S. followed for like the first century of its existence. So yes, the East Asian miracle, but also remember that 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 itself is a kind of long-term impact that you couldn't have anticipated in the prior century when the U.S. followed this. This country is a miracle of its own. Or you can look at the Danish miracle, Denmark being a big success. Uh, Denmark never had very rapid growth, but uh, their average is extraordinary and their absence world wars aside, of extreme periods of negative growth. So I think the exact formula, you know, will differ somewhat by society, but simply obsessing over this question, what can we do next to spur growth, is something we've lost. It's become, what can we do next to be more comfortable? And that's how Complacent Class, my mainstream, you know, trade book out, and this online book relate to each other. They're actually two pieces of the same puzzle. There's uh, one part of this chapter uh, that I have to confess I didn't quite understand. I'm hoping you can um, talk about it a bit. You talk about how the psychological understanding and acceptance for considering very long-term points of view, right, or very long-term preferences is something more akin to faith than reason, even if the initial argument is one that can be derived from reason. Uh, I didn't quite get the importance of faith. Uh, Can you talk about that? I think in in the common sense understanding of the world we know, people who think about the future more, they are more reasonable. That's a nice correlation. They tend to be smarter, better educated. But I think after some point, none of us are actually capable of processing information about the very distant future. So if you like care slash pretend to care about 200 years from now, I don't think it's actually a sign that you're reasonable. In a way, it's actually a sign you're irrational. It is the correct moral point of view, but it's like none of us are good enough to truly think that. So the way we get there is by having a kind of faith that the distant future matters. So successful societies, I think they always have a kind of faith at their core. It may or may not be religious in the narrow sense, though often it is. In the case of China, I think it's a belief in the rising Chinese nation once again, and it's our destiny, and you know we were great in the past. 
So the extent to which economic growth is faith-based as an empirical matter deriving from how human beings really are, that is incapable of being good enough to really give a damn about 170 years from now. Right. That's one of the key messages of the book. Yeah, I guess I, I also saw that as a, mm. an attempt to stay true to the initial premises of this that you introduced in Chapter 1, specifically that you have to have doctrines that we can believe in, and the way you convince people to believe in something is not always by giving them the facts and saying that you know a flat discount rate makes sense and all these things. You have to explain it in terms that sort of resemble religious terminology, yes. I guess. So this is a Straussian model. Successful societies are based on false belief, even though the false belief is highly moral to hold. Chapter 5, and this is where we do talk about redistribution. I'm going to introduce it <clears throat> with a quote and then a question. The point can be expressed as follows. We should redistribute only up to the point which maximizes the rate of sustainable economic growth. This may mean more redistribution than we currently undertake, and sometimes redistribution of a different kind, namely growth-enhancing redistribution. Uh, that's the end of the quote. This seems to me like a sort of clever way to embrace a rejection of the like oaken, leaky bucket trade-off between efficiency and redistribution by essentially saying, find a way to point them both uh, in the same direction. That's right. There are plenty of good reasons to redistribute. It may make your democracy or society more stable. The people you give the money to, one way or another, they may invest it, become healthier, become smarter, better citizens, contribute to the polity. That leaves room for plenty of redistribution. But simply the fact that two people have different incomes or levels of wealth I think that's actually a remarkably weak argument, and you'll do more to help people who are not so well off by having resources be in the places where they compound to create the greatest value. It will help immigrants, help other countries, help the poor in indirect ways. And again, over a long enough time horizon, that is going to swamp the short-run benefits from the other kinds of redistribution. Here's a, a variable that you don't discuss in the essay, um, but that came to mind as I was reading this chapter. Uh, and it relates to how you get the balance right between sacrifice and consumption now versus at some point enjoying the fruits of the econo of the sustainable economic growth that you're talking about. It seems like if you get that balance wrong, then what you're essentially doing in the present day is modeling a kind of masochism for future generations where they also don't enjoy the fruits of the economic growth, unless right. it happens incidentally, which is, I think, where you might go with this, right? At some point, you should enjoy the fruits of, of all your labor and the fruits of the labor of prior generations. That's kind of the point, right? Like, it seems to me like this is still a tenuous balance that's not easy to get right. I would say the GDP is the enjoyment. So if your society is, is growing at a rapid clip, it's because producers are making things that, that people want. The case that worries me is, say, something like Iran under the Shah, which tried a kind of breakneck growth. I do think it was their goal to grow the society. For one thing, they were brutal, but also they didn't even succeed in growing the, the society. There was a backlash, and per capita income fell a great deal because of the revolution. So you need to constrain any growth plan with some understanding, like what can you actually accomplish without people rebelling and saying, look, we hate economic growth. We want something else. Why prefer immigration to a big welfare state in terms of prioritizing? We know immigration raises wages by a great deal fairly quickly. For people, When people from poorer countries move to higher income countries, especially if the latter are good at absorbing immigrants like U.S., Canada, Australia, we can measure that effect. Michael Clemens has done the work. It's significant. 
if you look at papers on how much welfare helps people, like the Rebecca Blank papers, you do see an effect where if there's comparable groups, one group gets a welfare transfer, the other doesn't. Welfare does help people on average. It's not the Charles Murray story. I think that's more or less been shown to be false by the data. But it's actually a pretty small effect. And I think at some margins, you do make trade-offs. The more immigrants you take in, people start resenting if they get too much in the way of benefits. We see this in the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, at the margin, I think it's pretty clear immigration does more for poor people than welfare payments. You do need both, and welfare payments often help immigrants assimilate and you know get started, so that's important. It's not just either or, but when the two conflict, I tend to favor more immigration. I guess I read that argument a little bit differently. I read it as mm. if you have a big welfare state that requires high levels of taxation, people might resent the immigrants because a lot of them are going to require some outlay, oh, and they're being essentially taxed. Uh, citizens are being taxed to pay for it. It seems to me like we actually don't know a ton about the economics of resentment. I see it brought up quite a bit. For instance, I've seen people argue both that a universal basic income right. would lead to more resentment because there's going to be some class of people that will just be living off of it. I think you can make the argument in the other direction, too, which is that there'll be less resentment because everybody's getting it. That's the universality of it, right? right? Do we have a good grasp of what causes resentment from one class of people to another? I don't think we have a, a big successful meta theory, but I think there's a lot of evidence that there are many special resentments saved for foreigners, including foreigners who don't deserve them. So I'm very sensitive that those resentments get mobilized so quickly. And we see this so, so many times in human history. So whatever we can do to keep those resentments small, I do think we know that paying foreigners benefits leads to more resentment against those foreigners. So to the extent, you know, we need to be agnostic about that, I would say, let's be agnostic. But we're still going with our best guess, and that would be my best guess on that question. Uh, here's where your uh, soft libertarian stance takes aim at both the left and the right. Uh, you say that the left is inconsistent because it wants both, on the one hand, a lot of infrastructure, investment, and environmental spending, right, which suggests low discount rates, very future-oriented um, idea. Uh, but the left also wants very high redistribution, which suggests very high discount rates, and the right uh, has the exact opposite problem, just reverse those two things. That's right. So in my view, they're both wrong, and it's a sign they're really concerned with fighting other battles about sociologically who, who should have higher status, who should have lower status, and to force this consistency on ourselves you know, about discount rates, I think would do political discourse a great deal of good. Okay, here's uh, something that I wish you'd spent a little bit more time on in the paper, uh, which is where you talk about who should sacrifice, right? Yes. You write that somebody should, but it's not always clear who should. But in terms of um, encouraging those members of society who should be sacrificing more for the sake of future generations, you write that we could try elevating the honor and status of the necessary sacrifices, but then the question becomes, is it still a sacrifice? So in the Peter Singer version of utilitarianism, everyone is supposed to sacrifice. You know, all doctors go to Africa until you're at the point where the marginal doctor here saves as many lives. I think that's ignoring the production side of the equation. That said, I think today we don't do enough sacrificing. We could create more value. I think the closest we've come to a, a good standard for who should sacrifice, it's given by religion, maybe Christianity or Islam in particular, which have pretty clear guidelines that we should do more for the poor and who should do it and what should you do. And 
Uh, there's a postulate that there's a reward for doing it, so maybe it's not always altruistic. I'm not sure we know what's the long-run reward. There's some evidence from social science. People who give to charity are happier. I'm not certain about that. To the extent it's all compatible, great. But even if it's not, A, we should sacrifice more, but B, we shouldn't all sacrifice. Most of us need to produce. It should be those who are in the best position to do it. People say who would enjoy being a doctor in Africa or people who have religious motivation or whatever else. We're going to, for the sake of time, choose one of the following two points from this chapter, and then we'll go to chapter six. So I'm going to let you choose because either of these is going to get you in trouble. Great. Right? One is whether or not we need redistribution, in some cases, upwards to the rich. The other is the concept of replaceability when it comes to the lives of the elderly. Which one do you want to talk about? I think we can do them both. Sometimes, okay, let's do this. <laughs> if a wealthy person can create more value with some resources, we should consider that there be some upward redistribution toward the wealthy because in the longer run, it will mean more for many other people. So it's not really toward the wealthy. It just looks that way. Okay. Now, how much should we value human lives? I think virtually all societies, Singapore possibly an exception, are spending too much on health care that we could even save more lives just by being wealthier, spending more on public health as a general concept, and realizing that there's plenty of people around the world with major health and income and tragedy and suffering problems, and just by investing more in wealth and economic growth, rather than health care narrowly defined, we would create more value. And when it comes to how much should we value a human life, current healthcare policy almost everywhere values it too high. Let me do a quick follow-up on the redistribution <clears throat> upwards point. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to take this quote uh, from the paper. Usually this trickle-down won't come right away, but over time the rich will build more factories, buy more products, hire more servants, fund more research and development, push for more immigration, and so on. Sooner or later a lot of the poor will benefit, unquote. Let me give you my sort of quick stance on this. Not incredibly well thought through. It's just a reaction, right? I think we definitely have some visible high-profile cases where that does apply. Yes. Look at Bill Gates. Look at Warren Buffett. In my first job after college, I worked for the J.P. Morgan private bank, yes. right, covering high net worth Latin American clients. For a lot of them, these ideas were definitely not top of mind, right? It Correct. seems like, if anything, they had very strong loss aversion, and if there were any way that that money was going to be deconcentrated, it's just because they had a lot of kids, and the kids would all squabble over their inheritance, and then their kids would have kids, and over time, it would sort of dissipate. But these ideas of like building more factories or you know being agitators for social change and things like that didn't seem like a priority. That is strictly an anecdotal no, thing, no, and it completely. might be... Okay. But you can redistribute toward higher income groups in a targeted manner, investment incentives in the tax code, foundation law, deductibility of contributions to the right kinds of nonprofits. All those are ways of targeting the wealthy who do things for society that are beneficial while restricting those same benefits from accruing to others simply because they have a lot of money. Robert Solo versus ideas, regeneration, uh, growth models. Which one is better, and does it matter? Because the point is, we need ideas either way. In the Solo growth model, there's typically catch-up. So poorer places catch up to wealthier places. In the Paul Romer increasing returns model, the more you have, the faster you grow. It really matters for a lot of decisions which of these are correct. In the data, the Solo model seems to do better, but that's not to say it's always true. If there's increasing returns to scale, like every decision you make, it's so morally fraught because if you squander a dollar, look out into time, compounding. My goodness, you've destroyed billions, right? 
There's a kind of moral nervousness that sets in, and you need to retreat to this false belief of ignoring it all a bit. But I'm simply pointing out, whatever theory of growth you think applies in a particular case, it really should structure like how, how careful you need to be, how morally compelling is the right course of action. And in the Romer increasing returns to scale model, my goodness, uh, it's really hard to deal with the fact of how much everything you do is significant. Right. Let's go to chapter six. Uh, you're starting to make your closing arguments. Uh, the title of this chapter is Science Fiction, Hope, and the Epistemic Critique. This is where you set the epistemic critique against consequentialism, right? And you essentially say that you don't have to perfectly resolve the two in order to embrace the philosophy that you're advocating here. Correct. What is the epistemic critique? It says something like, well, maybe you're producing more wealth today, but you're changing everything about the future, and that could give rise to the next Hitler because conceptions change. And how do you know you're doing anything good at all? Right. That's the epistemic critique. I say first, let's take it seriously. So we should be a lot more agnostic, but there's still an expected value. You think in expected value terms, you're doing the best thing possible. But the chance you're doing the right thing, don't be so self-righteous. It's not 97%. It's like 2%. Maybe the other views are at 1.8%, but you're at 2 And act, think, behave, conduct discourse accordingly. That's one point of this chapter. But the other, this is the one that requires a lot of steps in the argumentation, is I think the epistemic critique is weaker when you're producing a really large benefit. Then you're less worried about other implications of how you're remixing the future. Or doing something with potentially enormous costs, too. Correct. So if you're really performing an activity that will help sustainable economic growth be higher for a long period of time, that will more likely outweigh these epistemic worries than if you're truly just bartering on the margin and nothing but. And then again, I say, yes, except the epistemic critique, you really do need to go back to agnosticism. Right. So the closing argument there is focus on the really big stuff. Don't exactly. get too caught up in the nitpicky stuff. I, I immediately thought of a lot of your views on the Fed when I read this chapter, right? You've been saying for a few years now uh, that sort of tinkering with aggregate demand curves um, at the margin doesn't really change a whole lot, right? It changes a um, little. It and changes a little, and you don't. And I'm not saying that you dismiss it, but Definitely the, the focus of your writing, like the stuff that you like to pay more attention to, I think, is, for instance, the step change that would be offered by like embracing a nominal GDP level targeting. But even more to the point, talking about technology and the importance of getting productivity growth to be faster again, that this is a lot more of a big deal than the Fed sort of, you know, waiting to hike rates for an extra six months or something exactly. like that. My main worry about Fed policy, if the Fed screws things up, People get unhappy more generally, and they then might take other policy actions that will hurt technological growth. So in that sense, the Fed can matter a great deal. But just like where are you on the Phillips curve today, how long before? I think it's much overrated. It takes up too much of macroeconomic discussion. I have uh, one more thing to say about big ideas. But first, I just want you to tie the whole thing together for us. What does an ideal society look like for you? And then please relate it to everything that uh, you just said. <laughs> an ideal society is where people have faith in the more distant future. They embrace rules, norms, practices, and institutions that help us build for that future. They work together in harmony. They have a capitalistic market economy with some kind of democratic representation. And most of all, they have peace. 
and they pursue a diverse set of plural ends through varied means within that bigger macro framework. And this keeps on going forever. Uh, One or two uh, concrete policy ideas that help move us in that direction. Spend more on research and development, raise the status of science, deregulate many but not all parts of the economy, have tax reform that encourages growth, innovation, and investment more than our current system does in the U.S. That would be a start. And finally, I have a bunch of questions that are related to stubborn attachments, but they, they come at it uh, from kind of a an angle, a slant, I guess, if you will. Sure. So it seems to me like your call to focus mainly on the big things connects very closely with uh, your exaltation, if that's not too strong a word, of historical American exceptionalism, right? So the idea that the U.S. Uh, has this mix of religiosity, of don't tread on me individualism that sits kind of uneasily with also a very strong sense of like patriotism. According to the founding myth, although there are countries that take in more immigrants as a share of their population, it is still considered to be like a welcoming place, maybe taking a turn for the worse recently, but the point stands. And then there's this sort of idea that I think I've heard you discuss in the past that the U.S. should keep some of the sort of Captain Ahab-like qualities, of which a byproduct is sometimes uh, a touch of madness, right? That we are going to collectively lose our shit sometimes. That is something, a price worth accepting, right? Um, In exchange for like the right mix of dreamers and weirdos and eccentrics. And that in some ways, that is the public good that we are offering to the world, is that we are going to be the weirdos. We're happy to do it. Historically, we've been very good at it, and we really should keep doing it, but it requires big thinking. I often say, or maybe you know, insist, that all thinkers are regional thinkers. You simply need to figure out what the region is. So I think you're right in identifying this as a highly American book. I think some parts of it would come across as quite strange to say a German, even though in the bigger scheme of things, Germany and America are not that far apart as cultures or economies. I think a book with with some vitality, it has to be culturally specific in some ways, yet also trying to embrace universals, but from a context embedded in a culture. And yes, this is my American book. It's yet one of another set of books on what is America really about. Let's be honest that all thinkers are regional thinkers. Yeah. I uh, hope you like my region. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing that came to mind was an old idea um, from a uh, literary critic, Harold Bloom, about what is the real American religion. Yes. Uh, I might be butchering this a little bit, but it's the yeah. idea that the true American religion is a sort of inward grasp towards like the authentic self with all of its weirdnesses and eccentricities and that it is something that stands apart from the natural world and when the natural world gets in its way attempts to overcome that right correct um i see this book and a lot of your writing frankly as a kind of macro application of that principle And the invocation of Bloom is right on target. Recall Bloom once, more than once wrote, Mormonism is, in a sense, the truly American religion. And if you think about Mormon theology, this book, in a way, is like a Straussian defense of Mormonism. These truly wonderful things will happen in the very distant future. So there's levels of heaven. You can end up ruling over planets. Now, I don't believe in the theology, but the notion that the extreme wonders of the quite distant future should drive so much of what happens today combined with faith This is also a very Mormon book, I would say. 
something that you don't mention until the appendix uh, is the idea of uh, cycles and societal cycles, right? You mentioned that Montesquieu was uh, somebody who believed in societal cycles, but so was an intellectual hero of yours, Tocqueville, sure. right? In preparation for a different podcast, I've just read Albert Hirschman's uh, Passions and the Interests. Wonderful book. Um, and he brings up both of these ideas, and I kind of want to hear you discuss it, uh, again, in the framework of how liberty and prosperity uh, are sometimes set against each other. Uh, so here's the windup. Montesquieu, I think, coined the term the <clears throat> doceur of commerce, right? That commercial activity had a calming influence on people that helped to counteract there are other more violent or rapacious appetites like the lust for power, normal lust, right, whatever, and that societally that it could be very beneficial, right? Tocqueville later took up this argument uh, and disagreed with it and said that, okay, it can do that, but it also has uh, the seeds of its own deterioration included, right? Why? Because the more people you have in commercial activity who are becoming more peaceful, it leaves those others who lust for power freer to pursue their ambition, yes. right, including tyrants or potential tyrants, right? The other problem was that uh, the more people you have in uh, commercial activity, the more that parts of society come to depend on commerce working well. And since it's a complicated, interdependent machine, it can break down sometimes, and then society turns to a potential strongman to try to fix it, mm -hmm. right? Um, so when I was talking about the potential for liberty and prosperity to be in conflict that's sort of where I was coming from, uh, and I'm wondering how you're influenced by these ideas from previous thinkers that I know you're familiar with, sure. uh, and if you can just talk about the issue of cycles a little bit, because maybe a society that pursues sustainable economic growth by your definition is going to go through these cycles, and there's always going to be a danger that they'll falter. This, I think, is one of the biggest problems with my argument. So I've said so many times, well, pursue sustainable economic growth. What if just nothing, period, is sustainable, Right. Everything falls apart or mean reverts or contains the seeds of its own destruction. Everything would then be marginal. We're left with extreme agnosticism, but I still hold out hope. So let's say a purely cyclical version is correct with like probability equals 80%, and the non-cyclical version is correct with 20%. Well, if the 80% says agnosticism and the 20% is this like Mormon take on pursue the wonderful distant future, you still ought to go with that. So there's a funny way in which one perhaps ought to follow what's in the book, even if you think the chance of it being the right view is actually fairly small. Is it because, in a sense, that you're essentially multiplying 20% by the almost infinite benefits that you end up with, and so that's always going to carry the day? Yes, but it's not Pascal's wager, which I don't accept, because the other 80% is not pushing against you. It's just some buzzing, teeming mess where you can't decide aggregation stops you and you're agnostic. So in that sense, uh, you know, it's not a small probability of an infinite, infinite reward pushing you to do what you don't think should be done. It's just the only thing left standing that you know can matter. Has anything changed in your views since you finished Stubborn Attachments? Well, finished is a tricky word for a book that's not published in a formal sense. It's online. I have vowed not to revise it. Not until we link to it, at least. <laughs> uh, we'll see how that holds up. But in part, uh, I put it out there to stop myself from working on it, a kind of self-constraint mechanism, thinking about my own more distant future. I would say I've become uh, 
actually in the last month a little more optimistic that the American system of government is sustainable against some extreme pressures. So that's made uh, some of the claims in the book maybe look a small amount better. Mm -hmm. We'll see. You know, the clock is still ticking, of course. Okay. Final question uh, related to the book, although only, again, tangentially. Uh, And it's partly also a question about blogging and podcasting, uh, both of which you now do actively. At the start of Stubborn Attachments and at the start of this conversation, uh, you mentioned, um, quote-unquote, I think, bullshit dorm room theorizing, right? I don't like it when people are dismissive about (laughs) dorm room theorizing. I I, uh, Well, uh, fair enough. So here's, here's my thing. I did a lot of dorm room theorizing when I was in college, right? And I might have been under the influence of, uh, you know, various illicit substances, and sometimes I wasn't. But I remember those conversations as some of the most deeply joyous, exploratory, stimulating times of my life. And I, and still, in some, you know, in some cases, blogging can be that way, right. right? I think it's becoming less that way, in part because it's like a victim of its own exceptionally high quality, right? Where now, if you write something, it has to be, I mean pristinely argued. For the most part, it has to be almost self-contained. So the kind of conversational blogging style that used to be um, more common in the mid to late 2000s, I think, has sort of fallen off. And to me, podcasting conversations like this one have sort of taken the place of blogging. Uh, This is also a point mentioned by both Ta-Nehisi Coates and Ezra Klein in their recent conversation where they feel freer to say stupid things, right, to be stupid. I wonder if uh, that was part of your motivation for doing conversations with Tyler or the podcast. But I also just wonder more generally what you think about that and whether it's to be lamented, um, this idea that blogging has become more paralyzing than it used to be and less just fun and freewheeling. It's to be lamented. One wonderful thing about blogs is how easily you can search them and how easily they cross-reference each other. And you have open comment sections, podcasts don't have that for the most part. Maybe if you have it, but it's not really a part of what podcasting is. I started my own podcast series because I actually wanted to talk with these people. I was shocked when they said yes. (laughs) Then I had to keep on doing it. Now there's more people I want to talk with. And it's like I'm stuck, but it's fun. Okay. Finally, I want to do a culture thing with you, if you don't mind. The last time we did something that you pioneered, a format that you pioneered, overrated or underrated, Right. right? where you would essentially uh, name something and then you'd say, relative to society, is it overrated or underrated? You'd ask the person, I turned it around on you, but now you've gone on so many podcasts and everybody else turns it around on you. So I want to do something totally different, okay? Overrated versus underrated has become overrated, <laughs> it's right? It's definitely become overrated temporarily, right? Maybe that'll cycle back at some point. Okay, here is uh, the game. Uh, let's call it Desert Island This or That, all right? I'm going to give you uh, two options. Okay. You're going to a desert island. If it's two people then you get to choose the entire body of work to which that person contributed, right? You have to choose between the two, right? Right. Let's do written works first. Ready? Plato or David Hume? David Hume. You'd get bored with Plato. Too many of them are a little bit the same. Too many of the questions are insoluble. Hume has the history of England. He wrote on religion. He wrote on philosophy. He had wonderful economics. Not even close. Shakespeare or your 15 favorite novels published in your lifetime? 
Shakespeare beats anything you can come up with, unless it's Shakespeare or everything else. Shakespeare's going to win. Anything well, you're even tempted. Wait a minute, then, because this is this raises an interesting question. Shakespeare, unless it's everything else, what's the marginal book? Like, is it the thirtieth book, the fiftieth book, the hundredth book? It's a very Cowenian question, actually. You know, at what margin do you stop? <laughs> I don't know. I'm tempted to just keep on saying Shakespeare, Shakespeare, Shakespeare. Uh, nah, you won't get if it's like the me. next best thousand books, of course <laughs> I'd pick thousand, five hundred, okay. But thirty is not coming close. Okay. Thirty best novels in my lifetime. Not many do I need to read five times, but there are easily twenty, twenty five Shakespeare plays I could just read the rest of my life n number of times and not get sick of them. Indeed. Uh okay, next. Uh Emily Dickinson or William Wordsworth? I would say it's close, but I would pick Wordsworth because he has longer works and shorter works, and that variation uh, I would find useful. But I think very highly of Emily Dickinson, and if it's not a desert island, I'm, I'm not even saying she's his inferior. I don't think she is. Here's a tougher one. London Review of Books or the Paris Review? They're both excellent. I guess I'd pick London Review. Uh, more intense essays, in some ways for me, more intellectual, a bit less. More history, a bit less humanities, perhaps. Okay, uh, let's go to cinema and television. Sure. The Clowns, uh, Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin? That's an excellent question. Uh, you know, there's a lot of Keaton that hasn't survived, so if I get to see that, maybe that's itself a value. But like City Lights, Monsieur Fredo, uh, two or three others, I think I'd give it to Chaplin, actually. But Sherlock is, is Jr. Those, is my favorite Keaton. Is any Keaton. of those as good as the general? Yeah, I think so. You think so? I do. And I like Sherlock Jr. better than the general. Really? So I'll say Chaplin. Okay. Uh, British directors, Carol Reed or David Lean? You know, neither is my ideal for a desert island because I don't think you need to see <laughs> them kind of darkness. <laughs> a lot of times. So I'd say it's close to a toss-up. Do you want to watch Lawrence of Arabia on a desert island? I don't know. I'd, I'd see it once or twice and then, uh, you know, start writing in the sand. Japanese directors, Ozu or Kurosawa? Kurosawa. I, I love Ozu, and there's plenty of Ozu I haven't seen. I don't know Ozu's silent movies, but they're a little slow, and Kurosawa is far more varied. And even late Kurosawa, I would say, is deeply, deeply underrated. The Shakespearean ones, you mean? But even after that, you know, the Siberian one, uh, one of the most phenomenal directors. People still don't appreciate him enough. Okay. No slight to Ozu, but definitely Kurosawa. Fair enough. Uh, last one. Meryl Streep or Robert De Niro? And I guess you get to keep the deer hunter either way. Uh, on net, in, in some ways, they're both negatives for me. Really? They have early periods that are wonderful, and they become parodies of themselves. And when I see them now, I cringe. Though they're both remarkably talented. Uh, Meryl Streep is in Devil Wears Prada. That I'd like to see again. It's a deeply underrated, totally vicious movie. Yeah. But for the most part... It's also it's stuff I've already seen too many times. Uh, I have a different question. Let's say you uh, you were going to have a starting five NBA team for the players. Okay, uh, this is National Basketball Association for our listeners overseas. Four of the players will be chosen blindly, and your fifth player will be either Tim Duncan or Larry Bird in let's say the best five years of his prime. Who do you pick? Tim Duncan. It's not even close. Larry what? Bird didn't play defense very well. He belonged to an earlier era of the game. Uh, he wasn't always that quick on his feet, again, especially on defense. His first few years, he was carousing too much, not thinking enough about long-term economic growth. 
Tim Duncan is one of the greatest players all time, and he made everyone else around him much better than Larry Bird did. Okay. I started with that question because I was putting together my all-time NBA starting five the other day. Yes. And that was the toughest choice for me, was who do I who do I put at the power forward Larry spot? Larry Bird's not in, in the running okay, at all. Okay, fair enough. So I'm going to ask you who your all-time NBA starting five is with one stipulation. You don't have to choose a center if you don't want, but you can't have more than three guards or more than three forwards. It depends how you mean to ask the question. I would consider just picking an actual team as we know it because they would play together as a team. So I pick, you know, the mid to late 1990s Chicago Bulls, I think. And you could tweak them no, a no, bit. No, you can pick any players you want. No, I understand. Okay, but I so think you're actually going to pick a, a cohesive unit that did play together. But then I'm going to give them a better center. So maybe you'd put Hakeem Olajuwon on that team. You don't want Shaquille O'Neal on that team. Can't but shoot free throws. You don't want, uh, you know, <laughs> Bill Wennington, like, anywhere near your, your continent, much less on the parquet floor. And then you would give them a deeper bench, right? But you would have to pick players who are content with not playing very much. So morale and team chemistry is so important. Mm. To think you can just pick, like, the five best players, it's a fun exercise, but it's a mistake. Now, if you want me to pick the five best players, I can do that, too. Okay. That's probably what? Michael Jordan as shooting guard. Point guard. I mean, if you have Michael Jordan, you don't want Magic Johnson. So the interdependencies really matter. You want more of a normal point guard who's willing to defer and who plays tremendous defense. John Stockton or Isaiah Thomas then in the pure point guard spot? Maybe Isaiah Thomas. He's a little short defensively. Uh, Scottie Pippen pairing him with Jordan doesn't seem like a mistake. Carl Malone, one of the best power forwards. Tim Duncan, power forward, center. Take your pick. Uh, you need some more outside shooting. Just like, you know, pick four or five awesome outside shooters who play defense, put them on the bench and, and switch in, who could also, you know, play small forward and then have like Dennis Rodman and another banger or two. And Maybe that's my team. To, to intimidate the other team. Yeah. Your team is way different than mine. I Let's just picked, <laughs> I picked uh, Jordan, LeBron, Russell, Magic, and Bird was my team. Uh, with Bird, it's too much, just, just too the, much all star power. I know. <laughs> like that's a bad thing. You don't think that team would be cohesive? Look, it, it wouldn't come in last. They'd make the playoffs. <laughs> 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 to start with LeBron is fine. Okay. It's as good as starting with Michael Jordan. Uh, and you would take, say, the Miami team at its peak and then change some of those pieces, and you would have as good a team as what I picked. I don't mean to discriminate against that team. I think, it, <laughs> But that's how to approach it. Start right. with like a trio that you know worked right. and tweak it at the edges with non-selfish players and bench add-ons. Uh, Popovich, your coach? Probably, yeah. Okay. Tyler Cowan, thanks for indulging all these uh, zany questions. This was a blast. My pleasure. Thank you. And again, think about that future. <laughs> And that is the end of our chat with Tyler Cowan. Again, go to ftalphaville.ft.com where you'll find a link to Stubborn Attachments. Send us an email to alphachat at ft.com or give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is plus one country code for those of our listeners overseas. Rate the show and leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help people find out about Alpha Chat. And you can also find show notes to this episode and all prior episodes at ft.com forward slash Alpha Chat. The stubbornness of my professional attachments is my collaboration with Amy Keene, our excellent producer and editor. Thanks for everything. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Brian, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat.